You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So I take the gun and I start to cock the gun. I'm not going to pull the trigger. I, I said, do you see that? She goes, well, just cheat it down and tilt it down a little bit like that. And I cock the gun. I go, can you see that? Can you see that? Can you see that? And she says, and then I let go of the hammer of the gun and the gun goes off. Actor Alec Baldwin was pointing a gun at cinematographer Helena Hutchins as they rehearsed a scene on the set of the Western Rust in New Mexico. Hutchins was fatally shot, but Baldwin has maintained that he did not pull the trigger and that gun safety on the set was not his responsibility. Someone is responsible for what happened, and I can't say who that is. But the Santa Fe district attorney is saying who's responsible. Baldwin and the film's armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. A person died because of this negligence, because of this, this recklessness. And DA Mary Carmack Altwees is charging both of them with involuntary manslaughter. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter in English. Bob, most people see this as a tragic accident. Is it surprising that the DA is bringing charges? Well, this does represent a dramatic culmination of more than a year of speculation over who, if anyone, would be held accountable for the tragic death of cinematographer Elena Hutchins. In this case, there is no evidence that anybody did anything intentionally wrong. What it really turns on is whether they acted recklessly. In other words, whether they should have been more careful in making sure that the weapon that was being handled by Alec Baldwin did not contain a loaded bullet. And ultimately, it killed the cinematographer based upon a series of people who handled that weapon before it was placed into the hands of Alec Baldwin. The DA is going to file two involuntary manslaughter charges against Baldwin and Gutierrez-Reed, two levels, sort of, that require different standards of proof. Under New Mexico law, there's voluntary manslaughter and involuntary manslaughter. Voluntary manslaughter consists of an intentional killing for which there was a mitigating circumstance that reduces the crime from murder. Involuntary manslaughter, which is what has been charged here, consists of a killing that was unintentional, but it results from either recklessness or criminal negligence. Here, Alec Baldwin was charged with two counts of involuntary manslaughter, one of which carries a penalty of up to 18 months, and the other is more serious. It carries a penalty of a mandatory jail sentence of five years in jail. Because although it was involuntary manslaughter in the commission of a lawful act, it was done with the use of a firearm. So Baldwin has said, Baldwin has said all along that gun safety is not the actor's responsibility and that he relied on the professionals on the set. 
Does that strike you as a good defense? Well, that really is the heart of the defense here. Mr. Baldwin's defense is simply that he had no reason to believe that there was a live bullet in the gun, or frankly, anywhere on the movie set. And this is most important, that he relied on the professionals with whom he worked who assured him the gun did not have live rounds in it. And the question is, for this jury, if it ever gets to a jury, is whether that is enough, whether he can simply turn over the responsibility for gun safety to the professionals who worked around them and rely on what they tell him, or whether he has an added responsibility since he is the person who is holding the gun, does he have an added burden to do something beyond simply conferring with the professionals and relying on what they tell him? The DA said that all the actors they spoke to said that either the actor should have checked the gun or should have had it checked in front of him, and that there was a pattern of criminal disregard for safety on the set. So at trial, are we likely to hear from both sides' experts about safety protocols in the industry? I think we are. I think in a lot of ways, what the DA has done here by saying things like, on my watch, no one is above the law, everybody deserves justice. What she's really doing is putting not only Alec Baldwin on trial, but in a sense, Hollywood on trial, celebrity on trial, really the question of whether Alec Baldwin should get any kind of special treatment here or whether he has to play by the same rules as everybody else. But the question is, what are those rules? and whether it was reasonable for him to have relied on what others told him or whether he had an added burden of checking that gun himself or taking additional steps to ensure that what he was told was accurate because he had in his hand a weapon that was a working pistol that, if it did have live ammunition, could result in a fatality, which is exactly what happened here. How problematic is it going to be for Baldwin that he and the DA completely disagree about whether he pulled the trigger? Well, the trigger wasn't pulled. I didn't pull the trigger. The trigger had to have been pulled. So Alec is wrong. That gun was sent off to the FBI analyst in Virginia who took this gun, which is a replica of a vintage Colt 45, and they determined that the weapon tested normally. In other words, they concluded that in order for the revolver to fire, the trigger would have to be pulled. So what you have there is an inconsistency between what Alec Baldwin is saying about how he handled that weapon and what the FBI report says. It doesn't really go to the heart of the case, but when you're a defense lawyer, you never really want to have that kind of inconsistency because the prosecution may be able to argue to jurors that he is not telling the truth about whether he pulled the trigger, and therefore he may not be being totally candid with the jury about what he was saying and what he was thinking and what he did when he handled that weapon. So the inconsistency is not necessarily something that goes to the heart of the case, but inconsistencies in your witness's testimony are never something that you want as a lawyer. There were three people who handled the gun. First, Gutierrez Reed, the weapon specialist. Then, Assistant Director David Halls, who handed Baldwin the gun, saying coal gun, meaning there was no live ammo in it. He's pleading guilty to negligent use of a deadly weapon. And then Baldwin. Any impact from the second person in the chain pleading guilty? Now, what happened here really is that the district attorney approached this case by scrutinizing the actions of everyone who handled the weapon and everyone who handled the live ammunition. And what they did was they looked at that chain of custody, and ultimately the prosecutor concluded 
that everybody in that chain of custody bears some responsibility for this fatality. When bringing criminal charges, the prosecutor is going to argue, if you are holding a gun in your hand, you implicitly have a responsibility to make safety your business, that you can't simply rely on others. And that's the heart of Alec Baldwin's defense, that in the many years he's been on sets, he's handled guns many times in other movies. He's always relied on professionals. He did the same thing here. I think we can expect the defense to bring on experts to talk about how the entertainment industry handles weapons on movie sets, what protocols Hollywood sets typically use. And they're going to argue that what Alec Baldwin did was consistent with the way the entertainment industry handles weapons on movie sets. What the prosecution is likely to argue, however, is that that doesn't matter, that the key to this case is not what Alec Baldwin did, but whether or not what he did was reasonable given the fact that he was holding in his hand a working pistol. And they're going to try to argue that it doesn't matter what the protocols were set by Hollywood, that the law is the law, and you don't have two legal systems, one for those people who are powerful and one for everybody else. The question here is whether he acted recklessly and whether he did it willfully. And that's really going to be a tough issue for jurors to grapple with, which is why this is going to be a difficult case, not only for the prosecution, but also for the defense. Yeah. And of course, as you know, the prosecution has to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. Baldwin just has to raise a reasonable doubt in the jurors' minds. Ironically, manslaughter can be more difficult to prove than first-degree murder. Manslaughter has all of these nuances in it, whereas if you're proving a case of premeditated murder, for example, you mostly have great evidence. You've got a confession. You have someone who had a motive. You may have good DNA evidence. You have behavior both before and after the criminal act that helped put this case together. In a manslaughter case, there's really not so much of a dispute about what happened, but about whether the person acted reasonably under the circumstances. And it's very fact-specific, and it really depends a lot on how the jurors viewed the individual's charge, and again, whether or not they viewed their conduct as reasonable. And in these cases, where there has been a fatality on a movie set, the results have varied. This is not the first time that an actor has been charged with manslaughter in connection with a death during the shooting of a movie. For example, in 1987, a Los Angeles jury acquitted director John Landis on four associates of involuntary manslaughter on charges stemming from the 1982 deaths of actor Vic Morrow and two children in a helicopter crash on the set of the Twilight Zone movie. That case actually went to trial, and after 10 months, the jury foreman told reporters that it was an unforeseeable accident and that the case did not warrant prosecution. Other cases, and even more recently, people have ended up pleading guilty. There was a case during the filming of the movie Midnight Rider, a biopic about rock star Greg Allman, where the director pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter and served over a year in prison in connection with a train crash that killed an assistant camera operator. So the results have been varied, and it's very fact-specific. And it really depends a lot on how the jurors viewed the individual's charge and, again, whether or not they viewed their conduct as reasonable. This is a case where the stakes are enormously high. There's a lot of pressure on the prosecution for bringing this case. This case was something that had generated tremendous publicity, not only in New Mexico, 
but throughout the country and internationally because of the notoriety and the celebrity of Alec Baldwin. And so there was enormous pressure on the DA to look at this case and to try to send a message that nobody was above the law and that Alec Baldwin was not getting any special treatment. And the fact that Alec Baldwin actually fired the weapon that killed Elena Hutchins made it difficult for her to ultimately conclude that he bore no responsibility. But at the same time here, she's going to be faced with a very spirited defense. Alec Baldwin has hired a, a very good criminal defense lawyer, and they are going to argue that Alec Baldwin was told immediately before he was handed the gun that the gun was quote-unquote cold, which means the professional who was handling the gun, who in whose custody the gun was in before it was handed to Alec Baldwin, told him that the gun was safe to use as a prop. So it really comes down to a question of who do you believe and whether or not you believe that Alec Baldwin was entitled to simply rely on the information he was getting from those professionals or whether the industry practice or simply common sense and reasonableness dictated that he take additional steps such as opening the chamber, double checking with others, taking additional steps to make sure that that weapon was safe to aim at somebody on the set and that it was unreasonable and dangerous for him to have simply relied on what others told him, no matter that they were professionals and that it was their job to maintain the safety of the guns on the set. There's a lot of finger pointing going on. Alex Baldwin has blamed Gutierrez Reed and Halls. And Gutierrez Reed says she wasn't called inside the church to inspect the weapons and that Baldwin refused her offer to train him on this cross draw, which is apparently a dangerous method of carrying a hand on that started in the West. At trial, is it okay if they continue pointing fingers at each other or should their defenses align? Well, I think part of Alec Baldwin's defense has to be that he relied on what other people did. Otherwise, the responsibility falls solely to him. So his defense is going to be that, that these other professionals who were well-trained and whose job it was to make sure that the gun was not loaded, to make sure that the gun was not posing a threat to others, he relied on them. And that as the actor, he does that all the time. And it's not his responsibility to double-check what they're doing. But in this case, there is the possibility that that defense could backfire on him in the sense that you are looking at somebody who's wealthy, who's powerful, who has a lot of celebrity and notoriety, who seem to be pointing the finger at people who are lesser celebrities, people who work in the film industry, but whose names the average person has never heard of before. And so that's the danger there that Alec Baldwin is trying to pass off his responsibility onto people who are working on the set who are just doing their jobs, who may have been overworked, and who are also faced with the same charges he is. And the question is, should everybody in the chain of custody here be responsible, or, is it, or should one person in that chain of custody be able to rely on the others and try to avoid responsibility here? That's going to be the question that jurors will have to grapple with. Thanks, Bob. That's Robert Mintz of McCarter in English. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. 
Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. There's a turf war between the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission over which should regulate the crypto industry. This as digital assets lost more than $2 trillion in value and a string of prominent ventures blew up in 2022. SEC Chairman Gary Gensler has been working to position his agency as the one to rein in crypto. Right now, there's not a market regulator around these crypto exchanges. And thus, there's really not uh, protection against fraud or manipulation. If the regulator wins its high-profile lawsuit accusing Ripple Labs of selling unregistered digital tokens without adequate disclosure, it will strengthen the SEC's position to take the lead on crypto oversight. My guest is securities attorney Robert Heim, a partner at Tartar, Krinsky & Drogan. He was formerly an assistant regional director of the SEC. Bob, tell us the views of the SEC and the CFTC over why it should regulate crypto. Well, the CFTC argues that crypto is more of a commodity in the sense that it's like a medium of exchange where people are using it as a substitute for currency and they're using it and they're purchasing things with it and they're not really buying crypto primarily as an investment product, you know, the way you would with a stock or some sort of security. The SEC takes uh, the opposite view. They say a lot of these uh, cryptocurrencies and token offerings, although there is an element in them of a value of exchange or a medium, oftentimes the primary way that these new tokens are uh, marketed as being uh, a profit potential, a very significant way for investors to, to make money by this investment. And that's the basis under which the SEC argues that it should have jurisdiction over cryptocurrencies and not the CFTC. I noticed that a lot of the cryptocurrency platforms and even Sam Bankman-Fried, they're advocating for being overseen by the CFTC. Is that because SEC oversight would be more rigorous? The CFTC's approach is is more of a lighter approach than the SEC has, and that's why a lot of the crypto sponsors and people behind tokens prefer 
the CFTC approach because with a security-based regulatory system, there's all sorts of requirements for them to draft prospectuses and to register the tokens. And then there's also ongoing regulation of the exchanges on which those securities trade. And if crypto was to be deemed a security, all of those burdensome regulations would would apply to it. With the CFTC, there's somewhat of a similar regulatory structure in place that does have provisions for protection for market participants, but it's not really as onerous as the security system in the sense that you don't have to draft prospectuses and, and give as much in the way of disclosure as would be needed as if it was an investment as a security. SEC Chairman Gary Gensler seems to be positioning his agency to take on the job of oversight of crypto. He has slapped multi-million dollar fines on crypto companies and those who promote digital assets. Yes, Chairman Gensler is certainly trying to position the SEC as the primary agency to regulate cryptocurrencies in the United States. In a way, this is a classic turf battle between two federal agencies, the CFTC and the SEC over who's going to have jurisdiction over cryptocurrencies. And I think it's indicative of a bigger failing in the sense that many other countries are engaging in a legislative process where um, people have votes and there's a rulemaking and there's a concerted, well-thought-out roadmap to how cryptocurrencies are going to be regulated. In contrast, the United States, uh, we really don't have that system happening. There's been a number of different bills that have been introduced in Congress that haven't really got anywhere. And much of the regulation over the crypto markets in the United States is done through enforcement actions, whether those enforcement actions are brought by the SEC or the CFTC. And it really leaves market participants in the lurch because they really don't have the same level of guidance that other countries provide in terms of what rules are to be followed and and what sort of compliance steps have to be taken. The Ripple case, the SEC suing Ripple, is the most high-profile fintech lawsuit. Tell us about it. The Ripple case is really the most significant enforcement case in the crypto space that the SEC has ever brought. It started the case back in December 2020 when it filed its complaint, which alleged that Ripple and uh, two executives with Ripple violated the registration provisions of the securities laws and raised over a billion dollars in violation of the securities laws in the United States. And this came as a great shock to the markets. Ripple and its and its token XRP were among the most popular crypto tokens in the United States at that particular time. And the company had been in operation since 2012. So at that time, eight years had gone by without the SEC you know, ever saying anything that this was going to be a problem or they viewed Ripple or XRP as being in violation of the securities laws. And then out of nowhere, this enforcement lawsuit was filed back in 2020. And it really completely shook up the market for XRP. It led to its delisting in the United States from various exchanges, and the people who were holding that crypto token really suffered a lot of losses once the SEC brought that enforcement case. And for over two years, Ripple has been fighting the SEC in court and trying to win a determination from the judge that the SEC simply does not have jurisdiction over Ripple or XRP. Yeah, and it's got some heavyweights to defend it, including Mary Jo White, who led the SEC for almost four years under President Obama. So what's taking so long for the judge to make this decision? 
Well, like any complicated case, there's a very lengthy discovery period that happened in this case also where depositions were taken, a large amount of documents were exchanged between the parties. Each side had numerous uh, experts that they retained to try to present evidence. And all this is somewhat unique because in the past, when the SEC has gone after various cryptocurrency sponsors and tokens, many of them didn't really have the resources to fight the SEC, and, and there was a lot of settlement. Here, Ripple does have the resources, and they've hired very prominent defense attorneys and very talented defense attorneys to defend themselves. And right now, that phase of the case has come to an end. And summary judgment motions have been filed by both the SEC and by Ripple asking the judge to rule in their favor and saying that a trial is not necessary and that each side is requesting that the judge rule in their favor. So it's been a very lengthy, hard-fought battle on both sides. Bob, is the judge just going to make the decision about whether its coin is a security or not? Is that the decision that is going to turn the case? Yes, that's really the key decision that the judge has to make right now on summary judgment. And the judge can do a few things. Um, The judge can rule for either the SEC on one hand, or the judge can rule for Ripple on the other. And what the judge is trying to find out is if there's really a material dispute in the underlying facts. And if she finds that there is a dispute in the facts, then it's going to go to a jury trial. If the judge feels that there's no dispute in the facts and it's really just a question of law, then she'll feel comfortable making that decision. So the judge can either rule for one side or the other, or the judge can say there's too much in the way of factual disputes here and a jury has to rule. So there's three different possibilities that the judge can come down on. So a federal judge in New Hampshire in November defined a digital asset as a security. Are there any cases where judges went the opposite way? Well, it's not so much a case, but Bitcoin is probably the primary example of a crypto token or a cryptocurrency that has been deemed not to be a security, where even the SEC recognizes that as such. The issue is that almost every cryptocurrency is created in a different way, and it's marketed in a unique way. And it's very hard to generalize from one case to another because in certain cases, and in the case in New Hampshire, which you're referring to, which involved the library token, the judge had to look at the marketing material as to how the token was promoted and what statements were made by the company. And that's going to vary from company to company. In the Ripple case, the judge has to do the same thing. Uh, Both the SEC and Ripple are pointing to the marketing materials. The SEC argues that those marketing materials show that it was being promoted to investors who were speculating on it and hoping that the price would go up. And then Ripple is pointing to other marketing materials that they say show that this is more or less a mechanism of payment and that people were buying XRP to use it in business transactions and to send money and to make charitable donations. So oftentimes it's a very fact-specific inquiry and it's hard to generalize from one case to another. Do you have an opinion about whether XRP is a security or not? Yes, I've been following the case very closely since its inception and I've reviewed the party's briefs for summary judgment. And both the SEC and Ripple focus on what's called the investment contract provision of the securities laws. And the investment contract provision is what the SEC is saying, that this crypto token is an investment contract. And as such, it is a security. 
an investment contract is one of the enumerated categories in the statute as to what that is. Case law has defined what an investment contract is, but I, I think Ripple has some very strong arguments that many of the provisions of an investment contract are not applicable here. Specifically, much of their marketing material really does focus on Ripple being promoted as more or less a mechanism of payment and not speculative investment. And, and a lot of people have filed amicus briefs and organizations in support of Ripple on that point. In addition, I think Ripple has done a good job trying to argue that there's no commonality of interest, which is another factor that courts look at to determine whether something is a security or not. But I think Ripple has some very strong arguments that the judge is going to give serious consideration to. How important is this decision by one federal judge in New York? I mean, is it going to be very influential? Yes. No matter which way this decision goes, this is going to be a very influential decision. If the SEC wins this case, it's it's a, it's a litigated case where the defendants have had a full opportunity to present all of their arguments by the most talented lawyers. And if the SEC wins this case in New York court, it's really going to cement its role as the primary regulator over the crypto market. And it's going to give the SEC a leg up in terms of wanting to be the lead regulator and arguing that almost all crypto is securities. And it's going to, I think, have a sea change in terms of cryptocurrencies having to register and exchanges where they're traded having to register as exchanges with the SEC. By the same token, if Ripple wins, it's going to be a devastating blow to the SEC in terms of its efforts to argue that cryptocurrencies are securities. And I think it's going to really allow people to feel more comfortable creating and disseminating and distributing cryptocurrencies with the more limited touch of perhaps CFTC or commodities-style regulation over a full-blown securities regulatory approach. Are judges influenced by the thought of protecting unsophisticated investors and that the SEC might be better at that? Well, yes, judges are going to definitely be very concerned with investor protection. And in fact, investor protection is at the root of the securities laws that the SEC is trying to enforce. And on top of that, we recently had the FTX implosion, which caused billions of dollars of losses to innocent investors. And and that's also going to be weighing on the judge's mind in terms of how important this is going to be. But at the end of the day, a lot of the judge's decision is going to be looking at the text of the Securities Act and the, the case law that's developed under it. And what the defendants have argued is that, you know, what the SEC is saying is that they feel that, that crypto really would benefit from more disclosure and more regulation. But the defendants are saying that that's fine and good, but it's really Congress's job to make those laws and to set the priorities and to set the rules. And the SEC just can't come into a new area that it doesn't have any sort of statutory jurisdiction over and trying to enforce the rules, which were created in the 1930s for the most part, and trying to impose this on a new invention like digital assets without any sort of statutory authority from Congress. Thanks so much, Bob. That's Robert Heim of Tartar, Krinsky, and Drogan. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.